Um, right before I start, I just want to acknowledge um, four people uh, that have hugely helped me as I've prepared for this uh, first session uh, on thinking about, um, is God anti-freedom? Uh, four heroes of mine, that's three, let me get numbers right, four. Um, four heroes of mine have been hugely helpful uh, in preparing for this talk. The first one's Tim Keller, uh, particularly his book, Making Sense of God, that's been hugely helpful. Um, second one is uh, John Stott, uh, particularly his book, The Contemporary Christian. Uh, the third one is uh, Chris Wright, uh, who has done a great talk on freedom. Uh, Chris is the former head of All Nations Missionary College, also connected to All Souls Langham Place, where I used to work a while ago. Um, and then the fourth uh, is Amanda Bell, HTC intern. Um, Amanda has done some amazingly helpful research for me as well. And Amanda, somewhere in the room, thank you very much, Amanda. That at the back there, great, good. Fantastic. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jamie's reminded us. And Lord God, we pray that you would help us love you uh, with all our minds and all our hearts this evening. Lord God, your word says it is for freedom that Jesus has set us free. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, tonight that you would teach us about that freedom, that you would help us, each one of us, to walk in the wonder of your freedom all our days. So come by the power of your spirit. Come and fill our hearts and our minds. Come and help us in our thinking and in our feeling. Come and transform us, renew our minds and our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So humans have always valued freedom. They've always valued freedom. There have been slave revolts, at least back at Spartacus in the first century BC, slaves fighting to get their freedom. Then obviously even further back than that, the book of Exodus, it's all about God's people breaking free from slavery in Egypt. And today, right now, in the 21st century, I would say that freedom is perhaps the most important value that we have in society today. And so often, God and Christianity is seen to be in total opposition to freedom. Take Mark Lillia. He's a, um, an American political scientist. He's a professor of humanities at Columbia University in New York City. He writes in the New York Times. And he talks about how he looked into Christianity as a teenager. And he found the famous bit that we all know in John chapter 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Lillia writes this. He says, Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus that... Nicodemus must recognize his own insufficiency, that he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. This seems like a radical challenge to our freedom. And it is, says Mark Lillard. And he goes on and he talks about how this is the reason that he, Mark Lillia, could not follow Jesus. 
Because Jesus Christ, he challenges our freedom. He restricts what Mark Lillia says is our autonomous, seemingly happy self. And so tonight, really the question we're asking is, is Mark Lillia correct? Is he correct about that? And we're asking that for ourselves as we think about the whole subject of freedom, but we're also asking it tonight for our friends, our neighbors, our family, our colleagues, many of whom will tap exactly into society's views and values today, saying that freedom is the highest goal, and Jesus seems to take away that freedom to restrict our freedom. So that's the question we're thinking about. Is God anti-freedom? Is God, is Christianity anti the very thing that modern 21st century society most highly prizes? That's the question. Now, what I'd love you to do is just take a minute with your neighbor, and I'd love you to try and discuss your answer to this question. The question is, what were the first three words that God spoke in the Bible to the human race? Not the first words that he spoke full stop, that's Genesis 1 verse 3, let there be light. But what were the first three words that God spoke to humanity, to Adam? Do you know? Just talk to your next door neighbor. What were the first three words God spoke to humanity? Go. Mountains are still being moved. Strongholds are still being loose. God, we Yes, we can see that wonders are still what you do. We are here for you. Come and do what you do. We are here for you. Come and do what you do. Okay. Come back, please. The first three words uh, that God spoke to humanity were the words, you are free. You are free. Genesis 2, verse 16, you are free. Now, it wasn't, you are free, full stop. It wasn't, you are free, full stop, because God continued that sentence, didn't he? So it wasn't limitless freedom. It wasn't freedom without any boundaries at all, but it was pretty close to it. Genesis 2, verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you've got an almost limitless freedom of choice, just one boundary. You've got amazing permission, one prohibition. And so I want to start by us seeing and us thinking about the blessing of freedom with boundaries think about we're going to think about the creation account Genesis 1 and 2 for the next 10 minutes probably what do we learn from it here's the first thing we learn we learn about the origin of the world God made the world which demonstrates to us the power of God what God says happens you'll remember it in Genesis 1 and God said da 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 and it was so and it was so and it was so God's powerful not us he's the center of the universe not us And actually, the wonder is that because God created the world and because God created us, it means that you and I, we are made for a purpose. Dostoevsky once said this. He said, if there is no God, everything's permitted. 
If there is no God, everything is permitted. Total freedom, you might say. But because God exists and because God has made this world, we know that we do have a purpose. He gives us that purpose. Life has a purpose. And because we are made for a purpose, there are limits, there are boundaries to our freedom. It's like the famous Thomas the Tank Engine cartoon. I've mentioned this once before, I think, but it's a picture of Thomas the Tank Engine on his side, having fallen off the train tracks, and he's shouting, I'm free, I'm free at last, I've fallen off the rails, and I am free. But of course, the reality is that Thomas the Tank Engine is far more free when his wheels are on the rails. And when he's operating in line with how he has been created to function, how he's, when he's operating in line with his purpose. You see, the way to freedom, and all of us, we want freedom. The way to experience the blessing of freedom is not by ignoring our purpose, not by trying to argue that we've got no purpose at all, that we can do anything we like, but the way to freedom is by submitting to the purpose that we have been created for by our creator. It is freedom with boundaries. The creation account tells us, too, about the order of the world. You've probably noticed it, that the creation account is very ordered. The first three days, all about separating. The next three days, all about filling. There's much more order, too. And that ordering, that amazing order of creation, it mirrors the amazing order of our world. And the explainability of our world that science shows us, it points us not in the direction of an absence of God, no, The explainability of the world, it points us in the direction of the goodness of God. That God is good, that he has set up this world in an ordered way so that it works, so that it's beautiful. God is good, his creation is good, and we are given the freedom to take pleasure from the creation. Life is to be enjoyed. We're not to think that this world is evil and to be despising all material things. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.4, he says, Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So as Christians, we're not just sort of interested just in spiritual matters. We should be interested in physical matters too. You know, when we stand on top of a mountain and our breath is taken away by a beautiful view, that is right, we are to enjoy it. When we've been saving for years and years to buy a house and finally we can buy it, we've got a place of our own, that's great, we're to enjoy that. Now, of course, we don't worship creation, we don't worship Mother Earth, nor do we worship created things, we don't worship money or success or status or our house. We worship the Creator. And it is when we worship the Creator, when we have Him number one, that we most fully discover the blessing of our freedom. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, life in all its fullness. It is freedom with boundaries as we worship God most of all, not any of those other things. And then third, the creation of the world, it tells us about our objective in the world. Right in the first three verses of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 to 3, we see the three members of the Trinity there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is one of the unique things about Christianity. If God is unipersonal, if God is just one, then power comes before love. If God is just one, then power comes before love. God acts in power first to create the world, and then he starts to love his creation. So if God is unipersonal, power is primary, love is secondary. But if God is Trinity, as we believe, If God is Trinity, then it's the other way around. Love comes before power. 
For before there was anything created in this world, before anything was created by God in power, before all that, before creation, God was love. The three members of the Trinity in a perfect, eternal, loving relationship with each other before creation. So you see, with God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love, that is primary, and power is secondary. And that is why in the Christian worldview, relationships are so key, because loving relationship is at the very heart of God. God is love. And because God is love, life is all about relationships, because relationship is at the very heart of God. And so if we just focus on that for a moment, that life, life is all about relationships, we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that there are four different relationships that are mentioned. Four different relationships that are mentioned as what it means for you and I to be created in the image of God. There's relationship down to creation. We've been given oversight of this world. There's relationship out to other people. There's relationship in with ourselves and there's relationship up to God. And our objective is to have right relationships in those four different directions. And freedom, freedom comes when we get those relationships right. When we are exercising God's rule over creation, serving and caring for creation. When we are loving one another. When we're having a right view of ourselves, not too high nor too low. And when we're living in relationship with God through Jesus. And that is freedom with boundaries, isn't it? Free to eat from any tree apart from the tree of knowledge and good and e- of good and evil. Because God says, leave that to me. God says that he will define what is right and wrong. I will guide you, says God. So don't try and make it up for yourselves. And this freedom with boundaries, God says that freedom with boundaries, it will be a blessing to you and me. But of course, we know that from Genesis 3 onwards, sin got in the way of that. You see, the whole temptation in Genesis 3 is the suggestion that we can be free without limits. That we can be free without boundaries. That we can be like God. We can decide good and evil. Adam and Eve, they choose to to exercise their freedom. They reject God's limits. They reject God's boundary of not eating from that one tree. They reject God's goodness. They reject God's word. They reject God's authority. They disobey God's instructions. They gain freedom, but at a terrible cost. Just think of those four different directions of relationship again and what happens. Instead of loving creation downwards, there is ongoing difficulty. Work, which was totally fulfilling, it becomes frustrating. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And the whole world becomes out of kilter with God. And we see that right up to today. This world, it is full of inexplicable tragedy and pain and suffering and sorrow. And we can't often answer the question, why? We look at the situation now, coronavirus, and we ask, why? But since Adam and Eve, the difficulties in our world, they are pointing us back to our out-of-kilter relationship with God, and they are pleading with us to mend it. How about loving each other? How about the relationship across to other people? Now, there is disunity between Adam and Eve. By Genesis 4, there is murder, and the fights and quarrels, they continue to this day, don't they? 
Instead of a right relationship with ourselves, instead of us living with joy and satisfaction, and suddenly there is shame in Genesis 3. And the distress, it just runs on and on and on. We are pulled down by low self-esteem, by regret, by FOMO. We are in bondage to competitiveness and lust and greed and self-advancement. And instead of upwards loving the God who made us, We start serving all sorts of other idols. Idols master us. Death enters this world. You see, this is the paradox. We have said to God, God, we want the freedom to make it up for ourselves. We want limitless freedom. We want freedom without boundaries, but it has led us into all kinds of slavery instead. Now, this probably tells you more about me than it does about the subject of freedom but to me as as you sort of try and think through human history since Genesis chapter 3 if you think through human history and the search for freedom through human history uh, it's a bit like Tintin now you know Tintin Uh, Tintin uh, when they're they're searching one Tintin book where they're searching for water in the desert Tintin searching for water Uh, the people that have uh, captured Tintin are searching for water The detectives, Thompson and Thompson, are searching for water. They're searching for water in the desert, and they're searching for water in the desert like we search for complete freedom throughout human history. Just look at what happens. Just going to have a two-minute clip of Tintin. Buy up and bring him along as a prisoner. Move, move, move! Well, that was a close one, eh, Thompson? Precisely. Good thing they found our papers in order and let us go. Still, I feel terrible about Tintin. We'll find him, Thompson. Don't you worry. Oh, look. An oasis. Good. We can feel the radiator. Huh? Father, it was a mirage. Never mind, there's a town over there. We'll stop for a drink. Huh? Another mirage. Another mirage? Well, I'm not going to be fooled this time. Oh, there it is. The well of Burkeg. Hurry, spy. Curses. It is dry. I must have water. as good as dead. Untie him and leave him. Look, Thompson, a real oasis. Bet I can dive farther than you. Bet you can't. Bet I can. Can't. Snowy. Oh, no. No more. Can't anymore. <laughs> um, now, um, hopefully that just may, may helps you remember. Genesis 1 and 2 show us the blessing of freedom with boundaries. But Genesis 3 and following shows us the mirage of freedom with no boundaries. The mirage. It doesn't actually exist. We keep trying to dive into it, to drive into uh, boundaryless freedom. 
We keep trying to dive into this freedom without limits, but it doesn't exist. It is a mirage. And in fact, it's not just the the following chapters in Genesis that we see this uh, difficulty and disunity and distress and death. It is the story of human history, Genesis 3, right through until now. So limitless freedom, freedom without boundaries, quickly leads to chaos. We know that. And so what happens? Humans build structures of control, laws, states, governments, even religions created as man-made structures of control, all designed to keep us within some human limits since we've chosen to reject God's limits. Now, in lots of ways, various human structures, they are right. They are necessary. But so often what happens is over time they can become tyrannical and oppressive, especially when you've got state power and religious authority blended together. Think of the Holy Roman Empire. Think of medieval Europe. At the moment, I'm reading this book by um, Tom Holland, the historian. I'm basically reading it to try and make myself look clever. Um, But um, uh, this book, it is about Christianity's enduring impact on the Western world and how it can be seen, Christianity can be seen in so much of what we are today. That in a 21st century Western world that has become increasingly doubtful of Christianity's claims, actually so much of what makes the modern world this modern world is actually Christian in origin. And the subtitle of this book is The Making of the Western Mind. But what's the title of the book? The book is called Dominion. Dominion. Because there is this sense that the Christian religion over the centuries has had dominion over people. With that sense of domination, with that sense of control always in the mix. And in response to domination, in response to control across human history, what do you get? You get revolutions, you get reformations, you get enlightenment. Think of the French Revolution that happened about the time that this church building was built. The French Revolution, the rallying cry in my best French, liberté, égalité, fraternité. Liberty, égalité, fraternity. Liberty, freedom from these authorities of state and religion dominating us. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a key thinker in the time, and what did he say? He famously said, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. We are enslaved, we are in chains. And so from that period onwards, at the end of the 18th century, there have continued to be movements and struggles, but all moving towards what we would call a modern liberal democracy, so-called free societies in the West. And there is a lot that's good about that. There is a lot that is so good about living in a modern liberal liberal democracy, a free society. You know, the idea of individual freedom in Western society has done so much good. We have a far more just and fair society for women. We have a far more just and fair society for those in minorities, racially, sexually, and so on. Indeed, there is a danger in critiquing the idea of freedom that it might seem like we're rallying against those many, many benefits of modern liberal democracy. 
But here is what has happened. The broadly Christian undergirding of that movement has increasingly evaporated so that now freedom itself has become the only thing that matters. Freedom is our idol. We worship freedom more than God. Individual freedom, it is the only thing that matters, the freedom to choose and decide things for ourselves. And so morality is now seen not to be given by God, not to be given by the state, not to be given by any external institution, but morality is just seen to be a human invention. That's the view. And there is an element of truth about it. You know, think about marijuana. Marijuana, in some places it's legal to smoke weed, in other places it's illegal. What is morally wrong and right varies from place to place. And so what happens is different cultures, different institutions make up their own reality on morality. And the church, like all religions, it's very good at it. Some Christian churches and traditions, they are so full of negatives and legalisms and rules and restrictions and and control and even abusive control at times. It is like putting people back into shackles and slavery all over again. And so we want to shake off those shackles. We want to get free. And sometimes, we'll probably know people like this, sometimes people become critics of the religion that they were once part of and they felt enslaved by. But when we say that morality is nothing but a human invention, we come into huge problems. When, as as many people in our culture today say things like this, there's going to be a whole list of things coming up on the screen. When people say things like this, I must be free to express myself any way I want. I am free to choose what I am, who I am, what I do, even free to choose my gender. I myself am the ultimate judge of what I do. No one has the right to tell me what to do. Morality is intrinsically oppressive. All authority is suspect and it should be rejected. There's no absolute right and wrong. There's just what is right for you. And we've all heard thoughts like that. All of it sounds good. It sounds plausible. It is freedom to infinity. It is freedom without boundaries. And yet I want to say it is radically flawed. It's a mirage. It doesn't actually exist. It's not a positive freedom at all. And so before I say why I think it is flawed, I'd just love you to discuss it. Let's have those um, list up again. It would be fantastic. Thank you. I'd love you just to discuss it with your neighbor. This idea of freedom without boundaries, that I'm free to do whatever I want, all those other statements up there, why do you think that those kind of statements and worldviews don't work in reality? Or do you think they do work in reality? Why do you think they do or don't work in reality, having those kind of views? Just talk about that with your neighbor. Engage the mind. Go for it. Now, you may have come up with other reasons, but let me give you um, three reasons uh, that freedom without boundaries is a mirage. First one, freedom without boundaries, it is impossible to live out. To take one obvious example, The moment that you fall in love with someone, you limit your freedom, don't you? Any serious relationship, it creates limits and boundaries. You cannot have a loving, serious relationship and just be free to do what you want. If I want a good relationship that is freeing and fulfilling, then I accept the restrictions on my relationship. 
restrictions on my time, restrictions on my actions, restrictions on getting romantic with other people. I'm not free to do whatever I want. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain other freedoms. And it's always that concept, a strategic loss of some freedoms to gain other freedoms. The most current example is with the coronavirus. You know, wherever we are on this sort of scale from mass panic to what's the big deal, wherever we are on that scale, we will all be agreed that we are having the loss of some freedoms. You know, freedom to go on holiday to Italy. Freedom to have large-scale mass gatherings. Freedom to have wine at communion. Freedom to buy loo roll in supermarkets. We are, we, are, we are losing those freedoms in order to try and keep the freedom of being free from a mass coronavirus epidemic. So there's not just one thing called freedom that we either do or don't have. Rather, in life, there are numerous different freedoms and no one can have them all. We have to decide which freedoms to sacrifice for which other freedoms. So that's the first thing. Freedom with boundaries is impossible, actually, to live out. Secondly, this dream of freedom without boundaries, it is a mirage because freedom without boundaries is ignorant of long-term harm. So, so the, sort of the, the, the idea is everyone is free to live as they desire as long as they don't harm anyone else. That's the basic supposition. But who decides on what harm is? Everything's okay as long as no one gets hurt. But who defines whether somebody gets hurt or not and how long a period you judge it over? You know, it may feel like in the short term that there is no harm in having a one-night adulterous stand. In the moment, it feels great. But over the longer term, there will be all sorts of harm to your marriage. Vice versa, being faithful and lovingly committed to your spouse and children, it may impinge on your personal happiness and freedom in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to be for the best. Jonathan Haidt, who's the uh, professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business, Jamie often quotes him, uh, he is from a liberal Jewish background. And he writes this in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. He says this. He says, an ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in search of personal and professional fulfillment, thereby breaking the relationships that were probably their best hope for such fulfillment. So you see, freedom without boundaries, it is ignorant of long-term harm. Impossible to live out, ignorant of long-term harm, and then thirdly, Freedom without boundaries is inconsistent. Because the whole concept of freedom without boundaries, it says everything's relative. You know, this is what I want to do. This is what I think. But you might want to do something else different. You might think something else different. And you should be free to do that. It's all relative. And yet it is a mirage. Because the reality is that we become pretty absolute when somebody disagrees with us. Everyone is free to choose their own thing, we say, but when there's something of big importance to us, we may be theoretically relativist, but practically we are absolutist. So a tolerant and woke society is actually a very intolerant society when you venture an opinion that contradicts the majority mind on things then that's thought to be offensive. It's thought to be not okay. 
You know, we have become Pharisees. Just look at Twitter. Did you see in the paper last week? It happens the whole time with Amber Rudd, uh, the former Home Secretary. She was no platformed by students at Oxford University 30 minutes before she was due to speak at Oxford. So there you have people supposed freedom without boundaries, they say. That's what the Oxford students say, freedom without boundaries. And then Amber Rudd, who, whatever your political views, is not exactly the epitome of evil extremism. She is no platformed. She's not free to speak her views. So freedom without boundaries, it is a mirage. Doesn't exist, it isn't possible, and it doesn't work. So finally, what's the solution? What's the solution? I've summarized it as this. The solution is the refreshing walk of freedom. Walking God's way, in God's story. Nelson Mandela's autobiography, you'll know, was entitled Long Walk to Freedom. As we we know, for Nelson Mandela, it was a tough, long slog for him to know physical and political freedom. But I want to say, for every single one of us here, to know freedom is much more simple. There's a fascinating verse right in the middle of the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, a psalm that is all about God's word. And a little bit of it's going to come up here. And just look at the verse in bold. Psalm 119, verse 45 says this. The psalmist writes, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. And that word, let's just keep it up for a bit. That word, I walk about, it is an unusual word in the Hebrew. It's not a sort of long, tough slog of a walk for freedom like Mandela had. The word means, rather, to stroll around for your own pleasure. So it's not like I walk as fast as possible to get out of the tube as fast as possible. It's not like I walk pushing my way through the crowds on Oxford Street and in the Christmas shopping. It's not like I walk, uh, you know, very nervously on the edge of a big precipice on a coastal footpath. No, it is I walk about. I'm strolling. I'm enjoying the freedom of a wide, safe, open space, the sun shining down on me. It is a picture of refreshment and enjoyment. I walk about in this wide, open space. I walk about in freedom. And the psalmist says he experiences that freedom. How? How does he walk about in freedom? How does he do it? For I have sought out your precepts. He walks about in that wide open space of freedom by obeying God's word that so often we think is restrictive. But that's how he says he does it. I walk about in freedom in that wide open space, but I have sought out your precepts. And just look at some of the words that are in the verses around it. Verse 42, he says, I trust in your word. Verse 43, he says, I put my hope in your laws. Verse 47, he says, I delight in your commandments because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love. This isn't some sort of heavy burden of legalism, is it? Or it's not sort of frustratingly complying with zillions of rules and regulations. This is delightedly, freely living God's way. Experiencing the freedom of walking about in a wide open space. And it's living God's way 
in God's story. Just look at verse 41. It says, may your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. And that verse, it is pointing towards God's story, the story of Israel, a story of God's unfailing love which brought about salvation as God had promised. It's a story of freedom. You know, being freed for the people in slavery in Egypt. A story of being saved from death and destruction time and time again. A story of God's grace and love in action. A story that we know is part of God's great story of freedom won for us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the psalmist is saying, I have freedom. I have freedom not because I've escaped from God's word, not because I am free from all moral boundaries, but I have freedom because I'm intentionally choosing to live according to God's word as part of God's story. You see, the truth is that none of us here, none of us in the world are actually totally free. None of us are. The question is simply, who is the best master for you and I to be enslaved to? Because something or someone will always be mastering you. If you, or or perhaps more likely, if a colleague or a friend or a family member or a neighbor, if you say nothing is mastering me, nothing's mastery, I'm totally free, actually you're a slave to your own independence. Your master is independence. Now, like the person, we probably know them, like the person who refuses to ever fall in love because it will always take away their freedom, they are controlled and they are governed by their master. Their master is independence. And they're enslaved to their independence. And really the question for each one of us to ask, each person on this planet to ask, is who is the best master to be enslaved to? Uh, David Foster Wallace, who's the postmodern novelist, he's not a Christian, and he, uh, as you see when he comes up in just a moment, he has a lovely bandana, um, and he's written this. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing to worship some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Strong words. If you worship money and things, you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He's not a Christian, but what he writes is totally correct. What will you and I worship? Who is the best master to be enslaved to? Who's the best master that will actually bring us freedom? The Christian faith declares that God gave us his own freedom so that we, you and I, could experience true freedom. Jesus Christ, he is the one master who has given up all freedom, nailed to a cross, so that you and I might experience true freedom. And once we realize how Jesus changed for us, 
how Jesus gave himself up and gave his freedom up for us, then we aren't afraid of giving up our freedom to him, the best master there is. And I long for many others I know who don't know Jesus, and I'm sure you do for those you know who don't know him. We can't go back to the Garden of Eden. We can't go back to Genesis 1 and 2. But we can go forwards walking God's way in God's story. And as we do that, as we do that walking, as we do that strolling in wide open spaces, God's space, that massive permission, but just one prohibition, as we do that walking in God's wide open space, that is when we actually find true freedom. True freedom, there's freedom from things. We'll know this, there's freedom from guilt. There's freedom from sin. There's freedom from fear, fear of things in this life and fear in things in the future and even in death. There is freedom from those things. And it's not just freedom from things that we have in Christ, but it is freedom for things. We are free for being our true selves as God made us and meant us to be. And that freedom, it is a freedom for loving, joyful service of others. Loving, joyful, serving relationships. Just like we saw back in Genesis 1 and 2, those four different relationships. So that's what it is now. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Galatians? Galatians chapter 5. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And then later, just a few verses later, verse 13 of chapter 5, he goes on like this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see, you and I, we are to walk in this wide open space. We are to walk on the road of liberty. The road of freedom, it is a wide road. It's not a very good picture up there, but it is a wide road. A wide road of liberty that we are to walk on. It is a wide open space. But there are boundaries. There are boundaries. Not falling into the ditch of the slavery of legalism. Verse 1, burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Nor falling into the ditch of license. Indulging the flesh, verse 13, in slavery to our own sinful desires. But rather, you and I, we are free to bear the fruit of the Spirit, serving one another humbly in love. Verse 13, we are free to walk God's way in God's story. John Stott writes this. He says, true freedom is, sorry, true freedom is then the exact opposite of what many people think it is not freedom from all responsibility to God and others in order to live for myself that is bondage to my own self-centeredness instead true freedom is freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and others Jesus Christ, he sacrificed his independence for us so that we can sacrifice our independence for him. And when we do that, 
we discover that Jesus Christ is the perfect master. And that walking in Jesus' ways is the ultimately liberating way. Because as Jesus himself says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Shall we pray? Let's pray. if the band might come up. Heavenly Father, thank you that your will is for us to be free. That your will is for us to be set free by the Lord Jesus to be free in him. And Heavenly Father, we acknowledge we so easily go back to the slavery of following other idols. Would you help us to walk your way in your story? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge we so easily fall into the ditch of legalism or license. But Father God, we pray by the power of your spirit, may each one of us here know more truly and fully the wonder of walking about in that wide open space of freedom help us to be those who seek out your precepts. who walk in your ways. Do that work in us, we pray. And we dare to pray that those known to us who currently are ruled by this freedom without limits, we dare to pray that you would draw them to yourself. We dare to pray that you might open their eyes to see you, Jesus, as the one who is the best master possible. To see that you, Jesus, can set them free and that they will be free indeed. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand? We're going to... Uh, sing in response.